Hey guys, my name is Yael Feiner, and this is My Climate, where I talk to regular people who found their own small way to make a difference. Today, I'm talking with David Quigg, a musician and a climate activist, work for Sierra Club BC. David will steal your heart with his deep voice, deep care, and deep thoughts. Together, we explore the question he faced when he was just five years old. Should you help one person while you know it won't be enough? Okay, so tell me a little bit about yourself and how your journey with climate activism has started. Okay, all right. So I guess about myself, I uh, grew up um, with a Colombian mother, and I think that was probably a main sort of introduction to social justice issues mm-hmm. because I, I visited Colombia quite a bit growing up. Um, and my grandfather's my grandfather was a lawyer who was... doing fairly well economically but you know human rights lawyer as well for the constitution and other things but anyways he lived in an apartment building that had guards with machine guns at the bottom and then there were what are called chicleteros kids selling chiclets gum in the streets like in the middle of six lane traffic breathing in diesel all day and they were they were my age <laughs> so i was just like oh my god how is this possible that in this world You know, I'd spent so many hours just looking down through the glass from the seventh floor window at these kids selling gum and stickers and whatever in the middle of the street. So I think, yeah, I think I've always just been wondering, like, why is the world set up like this and how is this allowed? Um, and then you'd see, like, you know, people with huge carts full of cardboard or things to be recycled. Um, and it wasn't like this. sort of the way we view recycling of like, you know, your city comes and picks up a big bin, but these are, are the recicladores that come and they scavenge for anything that's worth anything, um, little bits of cardboard or metal or whatever. And they have these massive carts that like you can hardly imagine even pushing it. And they're pushing it all day through the streets or the wow. sidewalks. Um, and that's how they make their, their little bit of money. So it's, yeah, there, there are just all these contradictions of like, And in Colombia and, and so many other countries, it's that entrepreneurship is everywhere because it's, it's survival. Like you have to find a way, a niche to get ahead in some way or just stay surviving. But then there's the other side of it that is that spiritual unity and that sense of community that I can't speak for those particular people themselves, but there was definitely not a poverty of spirit that I ever saw. In Colombia and then coming back to Canada or looking at my own relationships and just feeling lonely and isolated and disconnected and like okay what you know what's going on here why do I feel so anxious <laughs> you know, all the time um, yeah when you say contradiction you say the contradiction between your life how you live and how they have to survive what kind of yeah. contradiction you see we just Yeah, it just seems so unfair, you know, that, that some people have to breathe in diesel all day, some kids do, and they don't get to, you know, I, I had always loved music and thought, never thought twice about being able to ask my family for a guitar or, you know, explore that avenue. And these kids, they, they have to sell gum in the streets. Um, so yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I want to be careful about putting my frame onto their experience at all, but I definitely internally, I felt like this is just so unfair. Like how, how is this allowed? Um, yeah. Yeah. And what do you understand from that? Like, so it's something that you, every two years that you go and revisit that and mm-hmm. every two years you see that unfairness in life and it's not just in Colombia versus Canada, it's everywhere. Yeah. Well, like as, I mean, kids are so good at fairness and I taught elementary school for 10 years and I was always fascinated at just how inherent that internal judges, you know, my daughter with her cousins, we'd have to get a scale out and measure the ice cream on, you know, gram by gram, you know, right. so kid, kids are so in tune with that. So I felt like, you know, in a way, the older I got and the more I observed it, these, these rationalizations would kick in and like, well, maybe that's just how the world works and maybe there's more corruption here. So that's why, you know, all these, these intellectual arguments that get away from the essence of what actually is right and wrong um, and what's really going on. So would you say fairness is right? That things would be fair? This is the right way? Yeah. Like more socialism? Totally. Perspective? Uh, well, like, I, don't, would it I, would, I didn't want to put an ism cake. on it. Okay. I think it's like, yeah, we need to share more, get it back to the kindergarten model of like, in our, so many problems in our world are about a problem of sharing. You know, we have way more than enough food. We are constantly destroying food. I think it's, it's 40% is, is the statistic in the developed world. 40% of the food is wasted. And that's the same percentage that could nourish um, people who are without. So yeah, it's a sharing problem that we have really. So you're seeing this unfairness year after year, coming back to Colombia and seeing this contradiction. What else is changing in you through the years of viewing the same problem again and again? Well, that's right. It's like that's always been this burning ember in me is this sort of knowledge of just how unfair things are. And, and, and in the climate movement, the injustice of, of climate change, we have North America producing one quarter, 25% of all emissions are coming from, from a smallish population compared to the world. And yet the impacts on Colombia, where my, I feel roots to that country, but so many countries are experiencing such devastation and they had nothing to do with those emissions. So I think, you know, as I enter into more awareness about climate change and climate justice, like that, that's the why <laughs> the why isn't like you know oh we got to save the planet and the earth will perish of course the earth's not going to perish the earth is incredibly resilient and we are this wrinkle of life form and time but it's just the suffering um that that gets me and like is a gut punch it's just so unfair that people who are just born you think of any baby and you know we're both parents we look at our kids And we think, how could a kid in this world <laughs> grow up without the basics of what makes life possible? And um, that, that's the real kicker that I feel these fossil fuel companies and these, you know, maybe a hundred incredibly rich, incredibly powerful white men are just holding these billions of people hostage. Um, and uh, that that's the kicker. That's the unfairness that just like, it's so 
I don't want to use a swear word, but it's so unfair. Oh my god! Do you no. feel angry when you when you think about it, or do you feel devil? What? I don't know. I mean, good question. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. I think there's there's a bit of anger in there, but it's also like that. That's not why I do the activism I do. Like, I I do it out of love. I love for justice and for fairness and for you know i have to really speak to our more than human relatives because an orca or a otter or any type of bird i mean what did they ever do to ask for their habitat to be destroyed or to not have the elements they need to live of course not they they just exist in this beautiful symphony of life they have every right to be and I think that's part of the fairness thing too, is we need to, it's not like we need to save the animals or save the trees. We need to stop hurting them. (laughs) That's the big one. That's the relationship we need to think about. What do you feel when you face injustice? Let's take a moment and connect to what is alive in you right now. Your emotions are here to guide you and connect you with your truth. Knowing what we feel and allow ourselves to feel that is the first step in addressing big issues we face today, like climate injustice. Don't think about what you feel, feel it. It's not in your mind, it's in your body. Feel the sensations, the cold, the heat, shakiness, tightness. Let the emotion flow through you like a wave in the ocean. Let it rise and let it pass. We often deprive ourselves from the right to feel fully. And when we do so, we disconnect from ourselves and from our powers. We need to think about our relationship with Mother Nature. And currently we are in an abusive relationship with our mother. And how horrible is that? Who wants to abuse their mother? (laughs) But, And that is what we're doing and that's what first nations and indigenous cultures have been observing and saying for so long and i don't want to speak for them but what i interpret from it so many of their teachings is is we need to be in a reciprocal relationship with our mother that's in essence what we need to repair and not just in a week a month or a generation but in seven generations or more it has to be every decision has to be very long-sighted. I'd like to go back to that moment, being on the seventh floor, watching the chicleteros selling gums. How old were you when you realized this is not fair? Yeah, I was probably about five, I think. Five. Because I, I, I went every two or three years, you know, all through my childhood. So there was that sequence of revisiting those scenes. So I would see those kids again. As a five and how did your family reacted to that? It was normal for them. They ignore that, or was it was it a conversation at your house? Look what's happening, those kids. Oh yeah, no, a very important conversation. So I, my mom, who we would go down with, and my sister, we were always they were always very open to opening up that conversation and uh, unpacking it as best that they knew how to do. But my grandfather was a social justice lawyer who helped rewrite the constitution in Colombia. 
to make it more democratic. And I I just finished reading this incredible book about Colombia and just how much struggle and death and like just horrors that were going on while I was there. Like people were just, the civil war was so brutal. Um, The book's called Magdalena about the main river in Colombia. And it describes like just the sea of bodies that would regularly float down this river. Whoa. And so it's interesting to read that book, which I just finished just now. And like to think, okay, I was there at this time when there was this major class war because Colombia never went through land reform. And so there was the conservatives and the liberals, as they called themselves, were just engaged in this all out like, horrible war that was mainly being waged in the countryside, where if one side was sympathetic, you know, if villagers were sympathetic to the conservatives, then the the liberals would come in and massacre that village and, and vice versa. And it just happened over and over and over again. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So your grandfather was dealing with the law and knew how much there is injustice in the system. And when you pointed out as a kid to those chicleteros, what did he say to you? What do you remember? Uh, well, I mean, there was a bit of a language barrier with my grandfather at the beginning when I was that age because I was still learning Spanish. So I, I w- would have been more conversations with my mom, but she was so close to, to my grandfather that you know, their view of the world was so infused. So she would tell me about what he was doing. You know, he was helping kids who had no chance of getting an education uh, to get into post-secondary, this whole college and scholarship programs that were set up to get thousands of kids, university educations. And um, so, yeah, she kind of described how, how important it was for these kids to to have a chance of going to school and Right. So from your grandfather and your mom's point of view, there are thousands of kids that live in poverty. And the solution that they see is to send them to school. But from your perspective, or the individual perspective, or the little kid perspective, the picture is different. I wonder what would, would your grandfather offer you? What would he suggest that you need to do? I think about us as individuals, like facing similar situations in life. What should we do to engage, not to engage? What would he say? Yeah, I mean, he he, he probably wouldn't say, okay, let's get that one kid into a school or let's, you know, we, we can. But I think from my kid view of just seeing the unfairness of, say, one particular kid would be like, well, why can't we help that one kid? What? But through my mom and, and his view of this is, you know, if we help that kid, then another one will pop up two seconds later kind of thing. So looking at it from a, from a systemic model, mm. we have to really figure out this larger injustice and see what we can do. But yeah, what do we do with those tensions? That's really something I think so many of us who feel deeply, and I just read an article today that the concentration of wealth has gone up. It was something like there's 250,000 people making more than $50 million and their wealth has increased, you know, almost doubled during the pandemic while more than half of the world's wealth and opportunities to survive, let alone have millions of dollars, has decreased incredibly during the pandemic. So 
there's all these shocking in your face moments of like, what are we doing? Like, how is it possible that so few people can just keep hoarding wealth? When I was listening to David and what he was learning from his grandfather, I was thinking that this is such a common dilemma we face. The dilemma of whether to help one person when you know it won't be enough. When you know the change we need is bigger. And how can we stay empowered while facing those questions in our lives? Our human brain needs to map and organize the information. It needs to categorize what it sees. And while doing so, we tend to label people in groups. When we label people into groups, we are missing to see them as individual human beings. We are missing to see them as we want them to see us. Helping one person can be seen meaningless only from a disconnected perspective, only when you want to solve the whole problem in one shot. It can seem meaningless only before you did that, only when you sit at home and think about it. At this mindset, you are disempowered and helpless. Your body is full of energy. You want to do something, but you hold yourself. The logic stops you. Where will this energy go? Where all this frustration go? If you found a way to channel this energy to something else, that's a good way. But if you are festering on it, it can make you sick from stomach ulcer all the way to mental health issues. If you're in a position of policy making and changing the laws, your time will be best invested there. But if you are a regular person and you feel deeply, do the best you can. Do something small to get yourself out of your comfort zone. Break a barrier. Get to know those people. Create a human connection. But what if it won't help? You might ask. Well, when you do that, you will feel fulfilled and empowered. You will learn something new about yourself, your capabilities. You will learn something new about the situation, about the world. And from this point, changing the system might seem even a little bit closer. There is a beautiful old Jewish saying, if you save one soul, it's like saving the whole world. So your grandfather is a justice lawyer who work on uh, big stuff. He's trying to fix the system, he's building uh, new models. And on the other hand, you're a five-year-old kid that have those lots of feeling and new learning about the world, that the world is unfair and you have those conversation at home that it shouldn't be like this and we should help those kids. And, and there is also nothing you can do about it because nothing you would do will be enough. It has to be. Syst- systemic change uh, and I'm sorry to ask that but did your grandfather's big picture thinking took away your power to do something I mean as a kid what would you want to do I'd say little kids are pretty egocentric too and I think I was pretty wrapped up in my own world of, of my needs and concerns too so it was it wasn't everything I thought about while I was there, you know, I was like, well, how, how do I entertain myself in my grandparents' apartment? Uh, you know, I was just bored out of my skull a lot of the time or just annoying my sister kind of thing. <laughs> but on, in terms of like 
revisiting that scene every couple of years, I think, and as I grew up through my teens and became you know, more capable of, of action in different ways, I think that, yeah, that, that was the very foundations that started to inform why I would join protests. The first one I joined was the, the one when Suharto, um, Indonesia's dictator, visited the University of British Columbia campus and the you know, Canadian government rolled out the red carpet for him and other economic leaders. And there was a huge protest on campus. And uh, my sister and I and thousands of others blockaded roads and did these neat actions. And the RCMP pepper sprayed the crap out of us. Like it was yeah. horrendous. And it was all over the news. And they called the, the RCMP officer Sergeant Pepper because he was using all this pepper spray. And Jean Chrétien was saying, oh, I put pepper on my plate. I mean, who cares? He was so dismissive of of what we were doing. But there, I think I was translating some of those early experiences into, you know, why are we welcoming this dictator who's responsible for killing thousands of his own people? Um, I think I was 17 at the time. I remember walking out of my grade 11 math class to wow. to uh-huh. join this this protest. And and then just seeing the momentum there was was like, oh, this is this is real, and I'm part of something. And there's other people who care about this too. And like this beautiful arrival uh, around this work. So yeah, I guess I think probably everybody there has a similar story of like questioning injustices along their childhood, and then arriving at at different moments where we can express discontent <laughs> with. The way things are and, and try to move the needle a bit. So in this situation you were experiencing injustice firsthand, not uh, as a watcher anymore, but as a person that the injustice happens to him. Right. Yeah, it did seem totally unfair that our own government would just feel it was completely right to, to do something pretty uh, terrible, like pepper spray is, is very aggressive. Um, so yeah, it felt extremely unfair. And what is the feeling of unfairness? What is it? Can you explain that kind of? Ooh, yeah. yeah. That's a big one. Um, it's I think it's there's anger in it. Like it's a very visceral discomfort of this needs to change. Like there's a I don't know, there, there's uh, I think if 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 it's possible to change it unfairness leads us to to energy so we can change it but if we can't like if we're kids or something then then we freeze and we internalize it yeah yeah do you feel guilty for being privileged like this like you are Ooh, yeah i think i think for sure there's there's definitely um that's a big question I think like sometimes but sometimes I also feel very fortunate as in and not always thinking about I don't deserve this but w- I think what I feel guilty about is is being alive in Canada right now um, you know having paid into a pension fund when I was a teacher for 10 years and that pension fund is doing what it's doing I, I feel I don't feel that's right knowing that it's probably invested in mining companies and other companies that are not doing right by me. 
um, similar to, yeah, like everything in the fabric of our society here in Canada, the fact that we have weekends and labor unions and rights and these kinds of things is built on so many layers of oppression and injustice, let alone the fact we all this land is stolen. It's not ours. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel uncomfortable about all that, but I don't think about it all the time. You, you said something, um, if I feel guilty, it means that I don't deserve it. This is what, what guilty for you means? Like I, I don't well, deserve having that? Hmm. Or that things are not fair, that everything yeah. should be like, you should get the same opportunities like somebody else. Or, or that everybody else should have similar opportunities. But I, I, I don't think it's right the way I'm living either. Like I live in a detached house, not a huge one, but there's no way the world can support everybody living the way I do with my family. So I, I don't, I just, I think we just need to remodel everything about how we live. Like we need to live in better community, in more cooperative housing that doesn't require individual heating and separation. I think we would all, you know, I visited a, a housing co-op about a month ago, and I don't know if that's really the answer, but they had this beautiful community veggie garden that took up pretty much all the outside grounds and it was so abundant. And then yeah. the apartments were very connected and there was a lot of common areas There's like 200 people living on this plot that probably would have only had you know, seven or so detached homes on it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. there's other ways to live that are better for our, our planet and more in balance. So what stopped you from moving and living in a housing like that? Well, I think part of it is because I, I can live where I do. Like we bought this house six years ago when, when we could afford it. But now there's no way we could afford it on the incomes we have. And that's the case. You know, so many people are in survival mode, uh, let alone trying to do action to help the earth or, you know, social justice. For a lot of people, it's, it's just, you know, insurmountable rent plus, you know, com completely priced out of any kind of adequate housing. So, Yeah, I think that's unfair. And I think that leads to more environmental problems and social problems when we're just trying to survive because the price of living is so out of reach for so many people. So when you bought the house, you thought about, I want this and I can afford it. Even though justice and sustainability are topics that are so deeply rooted in your heart. Yeah, I, I think there's, I mean, there, there's a lot of, esteem around having a detached house that that is pretty powerful feeling of pride it's definitely one of the best decisions that i that i feel that i made my family thanks me all the time for for making that decision so this is really beautiful and clear to see the two contradicting voices uh, talking <laughs> and actually not talking with each other one voice and you understand that um we can't live like this and it's not sustainable and another voice in you at the same time like almost didn't even know that the other one is exist and just impulsively buy this house because because you can afford it yeah well that that's the question isn't it like do we want to live this 
torturous life of of microanalyzing every every time we go to the grocery store or every time we turn up the heat one degree, this kind of thing. And I think yes, it's important to to be aware of how our actions have repercussions and like you know right now we're looking into getting a heat pump and looking into our home's insulation and all those kinds of things because they they will have a better result down the road um but yeah i love going for swims and i often drive to the lake and that's you know probably a liter of gas or something to get to the lake where i love to swim and i think about that sometimes i think you know that's a liter of gas like but i really i need to swim it's good for my body I, there's no public transit there all these things so yeah yeah I, it's it's a tension that that i've accepted is is part of our current world okay a question how do you think we as individuals should address injustice how much we should challenge our comfort lives and maybe also what would be the best case scenario for that yeah I think where there's an alternative that that isn't totally disruptive to our connections, we should do it. So, for example, um, I haven't done this yet, so I can't claim any kind of credit for it, but I, I really want to contact my pension plan, which is based in Ontario, the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, and find out what they're invested in and say, okay, there's tons of green energy projects and other renewable companies that are probably better investments than whatever else you're investing in. So let's switch. Yeah, we're always, the, the narrative about what's important and what's valuable is so strong in terms of how we attain status and display our position in society is such a strong narrative. And, and, and we need to restory that towards how are we integrating our connection to each other And that being a sense of value, how do we support each other and help each other? And until we get to that place where there's that honoring of those values, like when I taught school, by the time I taught kids in grade five, grade six, I'd say, you know, what, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, that classic question. And a lot of the time it was rich. The boys would say rich and the girls would say famous. Wow. And that's so indicative of the value system of, Yeah. Boys want status through wealth and girls want to be seen and status through visibility. And it's, yeah, that's really programmed. We need to change that if we're going to change any of this. I want to ask you, where are you today with fighting for injustice? And what is your next step with that? Yeah, well, I, I'm lucky that I have a job that is really all about doing good action and justice. So currently I'm helping to organize a, a gathering at the courthouse steps at the BC Supreme Court mm-hmm. for Sierra Club and Ecojustice are taking the BC government to court saying your climate action plan is not at all sufficient to meet your own laws that you've signed up for in, in your Climate Accountability Act. So like it's really sad that we have to take a government to court, but clearly the government is saying, well, If nobody calls us on this, we can keep fracking and clear-cutting as usual, and who cares? So part of my work is, is to call them on that and help people. It's a, so how much it's fulfilling you to do that? Like, is it from one to 10? If 10 is like the 
ultimate fulfillment from doing that and there's 100% alignment and one is like your five-year-old so just seeing <laughs> those things and uh, can't do anything yeah well good question I mean there's so much of the job that's you know boring emails and and like you know grunt work that's not at all right. satisfying but the moments of connection where we are interacting with people be it on the courthouse steps or I this morning had a zoom call with a woman in Rhode Island who's going to be moving to Vancouver Island in a few years and she wanted to know how to how to start to prepare herself to understand environmental and social justice issues on the island so you know so I thought that's amazing that's part of my job and yeah felt really lucky Both. so it's fulfilling yeah so is there a next step for you do you want to do more fun things the things that you feel more connected with and less bureaucracy less uh, grant right <laughs> yeah <laughs> well yeah I mean part part of it is coordinating artists so the artist group that is you know creating work around the endangered species in BC and other things like that so I think I'd like to pick up my guitar more often and I haven't written as many songs that There was a real flood of songs that happened early in the pandemic when I, I wasn't working, but I feel cut off from that creative outlet and river. So I want to find a way to reintegrate. I actually picked up my guitar this morning for about 15 minutes and played in the sunshine and was like, this is where it's at. Like, I need more of this in my life. So I think, yeah, more music and more music that speaks to social justice intentions. It took me more than a month to edit my reflections to this episode, something I usually do in a day. The question of whether to save one person if you cannot save them all touched a deep place in me. An historical trauma. I am a Jew. The few survivors who managed to escape the death camps of the Holocaust survived because there was someone who helped them. In one of the darkest times of history, There were sparkles of light, sparkles of pure hearts. People who felt deeply, knew the truth, and were brave enough to risk their own lives to save others. Therefore, the Jewish phrase, "If you save one soul, it's like saving the whole world," rings so true for me. Please take some time to reflect on what this episode has awakened in you. You can share your thoughts with me via email or via my Twitter account. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Yael Feiner. Please subscribe to get a weekly dose of inspiration. Please share the podcast with friends and family. And see you next time.